Dearly Father, thanks again for this day. Thank you for the time that we have together in your word. And I pray as we open it up and we start to discuss and think about some deep things that we find um, in your relationship with the Father as you were here on earth, that we would see those as models, that we wouldn't feel that we can <clears throat> avoid those same disciplines, but they shouldn't come out of, of fear or necessity, like we just have to check a box off, but it should come out of joy. And I pray, Lord, that we would find our time with you in the word and our time with you in prayer, a joy, so that we can fight the enemy. Um, he wants to rob and kill and destroy us, and we need to be serious about that battle. Help us to do that. We love you. Amen. <coughs> I muted you this time. All right. This, like, crud has been hanging on for almost two weeks now, so I think I'm better, but it's still kind of annoying. We need to be strong in this battle, and we see in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul gives us uh, a picture that if you've been in church for a little while, you've probably heard this. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, he's wrapping up um, instructions to the church. He's talked about predestination. He's talked about the gospel. He's talked about this mystery. He's talked about how the church should be unified. He's talked about relationships between children and parents and husbands and wives and bosses, and he's talked about all these things. He's given us these examples that all the relationships that we have in our life need Christ at the center, or they're going to fall apart. And then he tells us in chapter 10, he discusses the whole armor of God. Now, this has been taught, I'm sure, to all of us, if you've been in church a little bit, once or twice. Um, I'll show you some picture examples in a minute. You can find posters of this all the time. My, the first... Uh, picture or first poster when I was a Christian. First, a new Christian at 17, someone from the Bible bookstore. I was in there looking for things because I'm a nerd and a bookworm and have always liked that. So if I'm new into something, I'm going to seek out information. I'm going to seek more knowledge. And so there was a poster in the, it was in the, they had a bin of three posters in the corner. And one of them was to be part of the army of God. And it was a picture of this soldier and the army of God. I had, I had never read Ephesians 6. I knew nothing about the whole armor of God. I, knew, I had zero context whatsoever. I just knew that if God had an army and you got to carry a sword, then I wanted to be in. Because I like swords. You know, I've always liked blades of all types. And so that was my first impression. I had no idea this was about a spiritual battle. I had no idea. I was thinking Armageddon, fight in the final fight, and join in. And I'm thinking my Christian faith and Red Dawn are going to come together in a beautiful picture of of faith and defending the homeland kind of a thing. At least somebody liked the Red Dawn movie reference. All right. <clears throat> so Ephesians chapter 6. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. This is the first barrier that we as people of faith <clears throat> have to address. Most of us want nothing to do with the idea that there's a spiritual battle happening around us constantly. It scares us to death. It reminds us of horror movies. It reminds us of we're not in charge, the bump in the night, the boogeyman under the bed. Like when you read through the scriptures, there's over a hundred references to Satan, especially in the new. There's a, a, there's a pile of 
references that there is an enemy, that a third of the angels fell from heaven in their rebellion, and they want you to suffer. They cannot take your salvation. We can argue that theological conundrum another time. They can't steal you from the love of God, but they can make your life a living hell while you're here on earth. And too often, we just kind of poo-poo that. We just kind of push it away. I don't want to think about that. That's what those weird Christians in the other part of town talk about all the time. We're not going to do that. I'm confident. I know what I'm doing. I'm in control of my life. I have everything under control. Everything is perfect. I go to church. I do the things. I read my Bible. I have devotions. I come to church and worship, and Satan's never going to come after me. I'm never going to succumb to that. It's not real. It's not there. And sometimes when you tell people that, I feel like the enemy is really tempting you. I feel like the enemy is really coming after you. I feel like the enemy is really having some influence on you. And they'll go, oh, no. No, I'm good. And how many times have you seen people completely change? Have seen people have a whole different side that you didn't know was... And like, what has happened? Now, I'm not saying it's always the enemy. But a lot of times it can be. And if we don't... If we don't address it and we don't take it seriously, then everything can fall apart. You shipwreck your whole life. There's a real enemy that wants you to suffer. And you think about what happens when you are taken out by the enemy. Can't steal your salvation. Can't rob you from the love of God. That's not possible. But if your life unravels, how confident are you going to be in sharing your faith in Jesus when you're not following or listening to him. Satan might not be able to steal your salvation, but he can corrupt the ten people in your life that you are going to be a link in their salvation because now you're off to the side. And so when Paul tells, I mean, he's just gotten done telling how to live your life in Ephesians, he says, finally. This is his closing argument. Finally. Be strong in the Lord. He tells us, you can't do this alone. Be strong. The schemes of the devil are coming after you. This isn't about physical strength. This isn't about flesh and blood. This isn't about, you have a real enemy that wants you dead. And is going to use everything in his capacity to make that happen. And if he can't take you out physically, if he can't take you out in that kind of way, he's going to attack you spiritually. And that's going to take you out of the fight. And he tells us we have to put on the whole armor of God. So he's given us this powerful picture. But the question we have to ask ourselves is how can I keep from becoming a casualty in that spiritual battlefield? He's coming after us all. So how do you and I prevent that from happening? That's what we're going to talk about the rest of the day. Because it's happening. And we can stand up and listen. to. We can share stories. We can share people in our lives that we've seen completely go sideways. And you have those moments like, I just can't believe this. I just can't believe this. Those are the attacks of the enemy coming after people. And sometimes there's willful decision, but a lot of times there's the enemy just coming after you. So how do you fight that? We get... A small picture, and I'm not going to break this down with every little element because we can do that when we go through Ephesians sometime. Um, but I'll give you the, the big picture in a second. Therefore, every time Paul has a therefore, we ask, 
Thank you. Some of you have been listening the last several years. Because this attack is coming after us, or because he gives us this example that there is a spiritual battle happening that we often want to ignore. Too much like Halloween horror stories. We have to be honest that this is a real thing. The enemy comes after us. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, stands in there a few times, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, typically we break all these down. We talk about the belt. The belt isn't just for keeping your pants up. It's also for keeping everything together. Like a warrior's belt. Um, Today, in modern, they call it a battle belt. If you've seen anybody that's in the military or even some of our law enforcement officers in town, they have all their stuff is set up. It's in a specific place. They practice with it exactly where it's at so that in the moment, the heat of the moment, when things go bad, they're not going, well, where's my, where's that stuff? I don't know what to do. It becomes muscle memory. And so it all holds it together. Then you have, but the examples here are all for us to understand that, that this is a battle. And we can pick apart every little element, but the one I want to focus on the most is the sword of the Spirit, which is the only offensive part. But the picture you have is Paul talking about a Roman soldier. That everything is protective, it holds it all together. Um, The shield of faith is supposed to, the flaming darts, the attacks of the enemy. So that's very similar to when the enemy tries to tell you how terrible you are and how awful you are. Well, your faith and your trust in Christ helps your identity be in him and not in the attacks of the enemy. So these are the, we see these pictures all the time. This is actually, I stole from, a, I think this was christianbook.com. This is a poster you can order. And I don't know if Marissa has schemes of putting all these posters on the wall. You can also get like a t-shirt made. This is from a t-shirt company I stole from the internet. Um, but they would put this on so you'd have, you teach these things and they're all great things, but sometimes we start focusing so much on the each element, and we talk about how to grow each element, and I don't know that's necessarily bad, but the point is that there's a battle, and you have to put all of these things on to fight the enemy, and the only offensive weapon you have is the Word of God. It's the only offensive weapon you have, and so when Jesus says, it is written, in the temptation in the desert, and he's going back against the enemy, he's using the very word because that's the only offensive weapon he has. That's the only thing you have to fight against the enemy. It even gets ter- turned into these, which these, these crack me up <clears throat> when we throw crusader images into Roman soldier images. Like, come on now. Stop that. Don't buy that poster, Marissa. That one's not helpful. Um, I get it, but this is very similar to the poster that was on the wall in my house when I was a 17-year-old teenager, new Christian. Um, I I thought I was going to be training for like a battle, I guess, of Armageddon. I had no idea that it's a spiritual battle. I had no idea that that's what's going to hurt worse than any fight I was ever going to be in. 
Now, it does bring me to this. In 2 Samuel, David is with, uh, he's, he's laying out the story of his mighty men. And if you have not spent any time, and they're only mentioned a few times in the Bible, a few times in the Old Testament, but David's mighty men were amazing. Uh, there's an author who's written several fiction books based off of the mighty men that kind of takes a little, takes a little uh, license and writes them, and they're fantastic action movies. I don't know if they're as good as John Wick, but, you know, they're pretty good. And when this is discussed in 2 Samuel, he, we get a picture of this one instance that I wanted you to see. Now, we know that when Jesus and his disciples are in the farm, in the field, and they're picking grains on the Sabbath, and they're eating, which was common practice, that you would leave the corners of your field, would be left there for people that were in need or for the poor, and so you would leave that there for people to have, and you wouldn't try to get every little piece off. And so when his disciples are going through and they're eating some of that, the Pharisees come along and attack him. And they say, who are you to break the Sabbath and do this? You're farming on the Sabbath. Jesus references a moment when David is with his mighty men, and they're running from Saul, and they need some food, and they go into the temple, and there's the bread of offering. It might be the bread of presence. I'm not sure. I have to reread it. But they eat from some of the offering, and they, Jesus is essentially in that moment telling the Pharisees, you don't really know who I am yet. These guys might be tougher than the mighty men. You might want to back off. It's kind of an interesting poke that Jesus has on these Pharisees, drawing them back to David and his mighty men. And so this is a theme that comes up in the New Testament. These guys were crazy, efficient soldiers. And to be the the, the inner three of David's mighty men, and then he had other soldiers with him. They were like the special forces, elite, top dog, Spartan, 300. That's who these guys were. And so we get a picture of a couple of them. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. I think I got that right. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel drew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Describes the other two of the inner three, describes many other named mighty men. One man um, kills hundreds with a spear. Tells a story of one guy only had a, a staff, and he goes after an Egyptian, and so he uses his staff to smack the Egyptian, take the Egyptian's spear, and kill him with his own weapon. You're like, why would you describe all this in the Bible? Why, why is this even here? Well, there's a picture of warriors. There's a picture of <clears throat> men committed, and I, there's one little thing I want you to see. He rose and struck down the Philistines till his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. When we're talking about the sword of, of the Spirit, we're talking about the Word of God, the imagery is given to us of a fight, a battlefield, a war that's going on all around us. You have to have the right tools in your quiver, the right tools in your belt, the right tools in the toolbox to fight this enemy. You can't use a wonderful multi-tool that I keep in my backpack this isn't the right tool to fight the enemy. I can fix stuff with it. Um, 
This one is kind of a funny outdoors one where it has a fire starter here too. So I can start fires too if I need to. And maybe that's when the project can't be fixed, you just burn it down, I'm not sure. But it's possible. Um, it's got a leather awl, which nobody does leather awling much anymore, but um, my belt is not, if I need to add a notch, I can. I've got a can opener. Not really sure what I'm gonna use that for, but I do keep some, I keep more dried food in my truck for emergencies. I can use the saw, use the blade. I can, this one even has a flat spot. I can use it as a hammer, but it hurts when you do it. I've tried it. But if I was to fight the enemy, then this would be my blade. It's not very conducive to taking out the enemy. If you know anything about knife design or swords, or like this is not comfortable, this isn't going to work very well. So you need the right tool for the job. This isn't a sword, but it's a trading blade. And so you have you have certain grips, you have certain things that you have when you want to do any kind of fighting or if you, it has to have a, a sharp point. This one doesn't because I'm not cutting myself right now. Um, but then you have a certain way <clears throat> in which it holds in and it sticks into your hand and you have a reverse. There's designs, there's, there's, there's purpose-driven tools that are used for certain jobs. Now when you read that Eleazar struck down Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. What does that mean? He was fighting for so long. He was fighting in such an extreme battle that his hand cramped around the sword. Couldn't even let go of it. His forearms would have been cramped. His arm, he had swung that sword and fought so long had killed so many, had put down so many enemies against the people of God that his hand was just held tight. Now that can't be a giant sword. It can't be a big old handle or his hand wouldn't fit around it. It can't be... He was clung to it. So what happens if you put a sword down? This picture of the Roman soldier, the army of God, what would have happened if he had put his sword down in the battle? He'd be dead. He's a dead man. He clung to it so tight because he knew if he put that sword down in the fight, he was, he was a goner. There was nothing he could do to defend himself. He had no offensive weapon. He couldn't do it. Now, the reason I bring that up and use my object lesson, because I never do that, and it's always awkward for me. If you don't keep the Word of God tight in your hand and close to your heart, you're going to be taken out. You have to cling to the very Word of God in such a way and love to spend time with Him so that when the enemy comes and the darts are thrown and he questions your identity and he tries to take you out from your past, the things that you're struggling with now, and he try, you're not good enough, he says those things, you deserve this, this should happen, all of that stuff will take you out of the fight because you've let loose of the Word of God. You're not like Eleazar who's holding tight in the fight with his hand so desperately wrapped around the sword. If he lets go, he's a dead man. How tight are you holding on to the Word of God? If you aren't holding on to it, then when Jesus, his example of it is written, and he speaks back to the enemy with the very Word of God, what do you have in your toolbox 
to fight against the enemy. If your hand's empty, he's going to take you out. Did she say Mike? Dang it. Mine? Oh. I was so happy there for a second. I'm like, yes, this made my day. I know we struggle, not, I, I don't know, I'm, not, I'm assuming that some of us have struggled over the years in trusting in the Bible. This is a graphic from um, Tim Challies. He puts these, these things, he has a team of put these things together, very helpful for me. I'm a visual learner. That the very word of God is something we can trust. Over 1,500 years, 40 generations, and 40 authors, we have the word of God. Pretty amazing. In the story we find in the Word of God, it's also compiled by people from all different walks of life. Doctors, ministers, shepherds, tax collectors, fishermen, random people from all walks of life. They did it while at peace, at war, when they were on the run. They did it in the wilderness. They did it in prison. Pretty amazing picture of how the Bible was compiled by all of these people while also in all different walks of life. Three different languages in all kinds of moods of life. Joy, despair. Like you think of how when Paul writes to the church in Philippians and when he writes to the church in Rome and he writes to the church in Corinth, when the Gospel of Mark is written, it was a different mood because it's the eyewitness testimony of, of Peter written by John Mark. And then you have Matthew, a tax collector, writing from his perspective as a strong Jewish man. And you have Luke, the historian, writing from his perspective. They're all writing, but it, all the story comes together as one coherent story, even though it's three different languages. There's one story of God's love in this book, consistent, inerrant, beautiful. This is, our, this is the love story that God has for us. We have, we have to hold tight to this. In it we find that no matter where we've gone or what we've done, God will love us unconditionally. We also see how to treat each other, how to live our lives. We see all of these things, how to fight the enemy, how evil he is, how much he wants us to be rid of us, how much he wants to thwart the kingdom increase. We see it all in here. Do you love to spend time in the Word? The other thing that we have against a way to fight against the enemy is prayer. Jesus got up and prayed a lot. If we're going to add to the, the battle belt, if we have the Word of God as our sword, and that helps inform our love of God and His love for us, then it should drive us to a relationship that also in our battle belt is prayer. Rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out into a desolate place. And there he prayed. This is after the desert temptation. It's after he called the disciples. It's after he performed his first miracles. After all that had happened, he went to the desolate place by himself to pray. We pray because through prayer we have access to that throne of grace. We rely on his strength. You remember that part in Ephesians chapter 6? where it's the power of Christ, it's the power of our relationship with God that helps us defeat the enemy. It's not just you having Scripture memorized. The devil knows the Word of God. 
It's you that the Word of God in your toolbox leads you to that relationship. And us in prayer is how we can refine that relationship. It's how we're drawn closer to God. It's how the stuff that confuses us in the Bible becomes less confusing. Or we get to the place like, I'm never going to understand that. I'm just going to trust God. Because I have a relationship with him. Jesus went away to the desolate places. He went away to pray. And that's why I mean when if you think you can fight the enemy without the word of God, Jesus said it is written, and you think you can fight the enemy without having a, a prayer life, communication, relationship with God, a personal relationship with him, if Jesus, God in flesh, spent time in the scriptures and spent time in prayer with his father, why do you think you can pull it off without doing the same? It's pretty arrogant and super dangerous. Immediately he made his disciples get in the boat. This is after he's fed thousands. Now, I, I reread, I knew I wanted to talk about this, but then I reread it kind of from a different light this week. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he, he, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. This is the picture of Jesus, feeds the 5,000, he tells the disciples to get away, and then he dismisses the crowd, thank you for coming, probably shakes some hands, thank you, you're awesome, I love you, just, I need to go be alone now. Now think about this. This is the Sea of Galilee, Bethsaida is across the lake, it's huge. I should have put a picture in, but the lake is huge. And Jesus says, hey, did no disciple go, Jesus, how are you going to get there? Like it wasn't, a, are you sure, Jesus? What are you doing? You put us in the boat, you're going to dismiss them, and then we're just going to meet you in the morning? We don't have any of that context, but it seems to me that apparently this was a common practice. They didn't go, no, Jesus, I'll stay with you. No, 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 I'll be your security. No, 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 we'll hang out, we'll have some bro time. Like nobody said that. Jesus says, go away. I got this. They get in the boat. We know the picture. We know the story. He then walks across the water after he has his time. The storm comes. He calms the storm. Even in the passage, it says Jesus intended to walk past them. He's going to leave them in the dust. And they saw him like, oh, Jesus, what? Oh, this isn't the storm. This is the walk on the water. Sorry, I'm mixing the stories. He was just going to walk past them. And they go, Like Jesus, there was a pattern in his life with the disciples where after things happened, they didn't question it. Well, he's going to take the long way. We'll probably see him in two days. He needs to be alone. He needs some time to recharge his batteries. So this is a common practice for him to withdraw from the disciples and pray, and they didn't question it. We miss this, and then we just go straight to the walking on the water part, which is still an amazing part of his story. But it was such a common practice that he would just disappear for a while because he needed time with the Lord. That should give us a window into our necessity to have time carved away. If Jesus needed to do that, it was part of his common practice. It should be part of ours as well. About eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John. This is um, after he told the disciples they have to take up their cross and follow him. And some leave because this is terrifying to them. Um, and then he takes the inner three, Peter, John, and James, to the mountaintop to pray. 
And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, his clothing became dazzling white, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So he's alone in the desert with the devil, defeats him, pushes him away. He then, after his first miracles, he goes away by himself. There's a clear pattern happening in his life where the disciples know this is what he does. Hey, you guys get on the boat, take off, I gotta be alone. Not an uncommon thing. And then he's so he's he's modeling this to the disciples. Then he eventually brings three of them with him. He's all alone. They know what he does, they know it's his pattern, and then he brings them with him. So they get to witness Elijah and Moses. They get to see Jesus' transfiguration, to see him in his glory. They get to see this amazing moment because he's brought them along to pray. And then we see when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane before he is going to go to the cross, he asks them to stay awake and pray for him, doesn't he? He gets mad because they fall asleep. He gets mad because they've upset. That's probably a better word. He's upset with them because he knows he's about to die and they're sleeping and he asks them, stay awake. He's not just saying, stay awake and watch out for the guards. He knows they're coming. He's saying, pray with me. Like, I'm going to go over here by myself, but you're right here. You see me and transfigure. Pray with me. He brings them in. Perfect picture of discipleship. Perfect picture of bringing people along and mentoring them. You bring them in with you. You show them. You model it. And then you engage with them. But think of all of those things happening was so that he would have this strength. He knows the word of God. He's defeated Satan when he's with the very word of God. He's been in prayer and he's in this moment of the last breaths of his life, the most intense pain he's ever experienced is about to happen. And he goes to the garden and he has the strength to have this conversation with the Father. My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again, same conversation. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And Jesus has predicted his death. He knows how it's going to happen. He knows it's about to be unfolded to the end in these next hours. And he has the confidence to go to the Father and say, in this wilderness moment of facing my death, I really don't want to have this pain. I really don't want to have to go through this because I just, it's going to be so hard. But your will, Lord, your will, Dad. We hatched this plan before time began. I knew it was coming, but this is going to be terrible. I'm going to feel sin and pain like a, that, that has never been part of his holy life and his eternal existence. But he's willing to do it for the love of his creation. And he has this conversation with God the Father. How many times have we all had those conversations with God? Pain's coming. We're in a terrible situation. We're laying on our faces. We're on our knees. Lord, please take this from me. Please take this from me. I don't know if I can bear it. But with you, I know I'll get through it. We've all been there, haven't we? I mean, I've been in a pretty dark wilderness place the last several months. I've prayed that prayer more than once. Like, I don't, I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. I'm going to 
I'm going to trust you. Please take this away. Please heal this. Please fix this. I don't know what your plan is. I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to trust you no matter what. That's not possible to have those kinds of conversations with God until you've been trained up and prepared for the battle. Because even though you know the Word of God, even though you're in prayer, when it takes your knees out, you're like, oh, this is terrible. I don't know if I have it in me. I don't know if I can do this. And He will sustain you. You can't let your hand off the sword you're going to die. He's going to take you out. You can't stop talking to him, even when you're mad, even when you're confused, even when you don't understand. You can't stop talking to him. That's when the enemy will take you out. The two things we have against the enemy is the word of God and prayer. Now this, there's many fingers off of this. There's many disciplines, there's many other things. There's, I didn't put community and church in there because those should come off of your personal relationship with God and prayer and scripture. You should have community helping you in Bible study, praying with you, praying for you. All of those things are there, but the two things we have are the word of God and prayer. And when you bring friends into the mix, that's Still, scripture, prayer, love, community, that's all part of it. But we, that's what we have. In our battle belt, we've got prayer and scripture. We've got a relationship with him. We trust in him. We trust in, our, in the gospel. We trust in his love for us. But this is what we have to fight against the enemy. Now, I, I'm going to give you how my life rolls around a little bit with this. And I'm a nerd. And I like technology. And a lot of mine I discovered as I was putting this together, there's a whole lot of digitalness in my fight against the enemy. Do not think that you have to do it my way. You can do all of this with a Bible and a notebook and an ink pen. Okay? When you look at the home screen of my phone, which I'm not going to blow this up because it doesn't matter, there's lots going on here. I've got a Bible app, and I've got Onyx Hunt, because I like to make sure I don't kill things when I shouldn't. Um, but there's also an app I use for prayer. There's a journal app. There's different things I use. And my whole, my, a lot of the, my fight against the enemy is very digital. So don't just run with mine. But I am currently, I took this, like, well, you can tell I was up at midnight last night when I did this screen capture. Uh, these are the three Bible plans that I'm currently in. One is with Eli. We're going to read through the Bible in three years. Uh, and then the other two are with some guys in the church that I run through. This is in the YouVersion Bible app. And so you can, I, I, I try to be in the Word every day in these devotions. Some days I get a day behind and I catch up and I take some more time. But I'm trying to read through these three devotions and through the Bible. We, Eli and I have read through the Bible every year for the last several years. We decided this year we wanted we want to slow down and do the Bible in three years and have a little longer run through the scriptures. Kind of slow down. Now I do it with an app because I'm a nerd and it, this works for me. Most Bibles, we can print a million different plans and you can print it out on paper and you can stick it in your Bible and use an ink pen and check it off. 
The point is, do you spend time in the Word? Do you have some kind of a daily walk with the Lord? And if you miss a day or you miss two days, you're traveling, it's busy, do you, do you re-engage or, or do you miss two days and go, well, I'm not going to read the Bible for six months? That's a terrible plan. That's letting your hand off the sword. I read other books too. Um, some are not. Uh, I don't update this very often. I'm not very good at updating the list. But I read, I read other books too. Some of them inform my faith. Some of them are things to deal with. Some of them are fun like Jefferson and I just got the Lego story. I want to read about how Legos are made and the story of the Lego family. Like, are, are you filling your brain with stuff that's not just trivial nonsense? I, I don't want to, I was going to name several TV shows that we all watch, but I don't want to insult any of you, but there's a lot of bad stuff out there that we just mindlessly watch. When it comes to prayer, um, this, you can't, this is a terrible screenshot. Um, I use this, uh, it runs through several things, like I can set up groups, like I have a group for the church. I have the prayer list that we get every week and I add to it. Um, I have my family, I have my coworkers, I have people in the community, I have um, even praying for a different nation, an unreached people group every day. And so I can just swipe through and spend as much time praying for these groups as I want. And it's right there in front of my face and I can say, hey, I need to pray for these people and so I'm gonna pray for them. Um, I've told the story before of the nun that I was a praying nun in Vincennes, Indiana. Um, Vincennes, Indiana has several Catholic churches in it. It's an old French fur trading town, and so there's a lot of Catholicism there. And there was a nun that lived in the area, and I got this from the lady, from a nurse. When this nurse friend of mine, when she had a baby, the do her daughter was a preemie. And it got to this nun in the community that this preemie needed to be prayed for, and she wrote her name down in her notebook, and she prayed for her for 16 years. And so this nun ended up in the hospital, and the mother of this girl was her nurse. And they got to talking and conversing, and she was praying, what are you doing? I pray, I pray for people all the time. And oh yeah, and she goes, well, what's your name? I, I wonder if you're in my book. And she's like, uh, I don't know. She told her her name, and she flipped through, and I don't know how she had it organized, but she flipped and she found, and she goes, Brandy, is that your daughter? Yeah, he goes, I've been praying for her for 16 years and I never knew what turned out. I just knew that she was born premature. Is she doing okay? Yeah, and she adds a note to it that she was doing great. She'd been praying for someone daily for 16 years and had no idea what had happened, who this person was. And she just prayed every day through her notebook and she would make marks. Pray for this one, this one's passed, this one's doing better. And she would just go through her notebook. That's amazing to me. Like how much when we give prayer requests and we share them, like how often are you going after those prayers? Are you really praying for people? Are you really going to pray for Dan and his throat this week? Or do you just hear it and let it go in one or out the other? Like, do you pray for people? Well, this helps me because I'm an organizational mess. And this one I've talked about often. Um, this is a journal app that I use, and I've really re-engaged with this one in the last three months. There's something that happens when things are in your head, and I forget this, like the, the medical stuff or the brain stuff. When it goes from your, the, your frontal lobe to the limbic system, if you don't get your thoughts out of your head, then they just sit there and swirl. You've got to get them out. You either tell them to somebody, 
Or for me, it's writing them out, it's journaling them out. And so I've re-engaged pretty heavily in the last several months. Um, there's a lot that goes on in my head and my heart, and if I don't get it out, if I don't put it down and put some organization to it, then I just sit in it. That can lead to stomach issues. Um, good friend of mine was telling me about all this, that you have stomach anxiety, things are happening, when stress is happening, it's because you're not getting it out. You've got to get it out. And so I've re-engaged with, like, you, you have to do this. If I'm constantly in my head and the enemy's attacking me and I don't have the Word of God in a tight grip and I'm not in prayer and I'm not letting the stuff that's pressing in on me get out, then the enemy's going to take me out. He's going to take you out. Now, you can do this with a notebook. You can just write. My kids, um, even though they're young generation, they are analog as all can get out when it comes to this stuff. Both of them have pen and paper journals that they would prefer to write in. They don't want to do it in an app. I can't read my own handwriting, so I have to, or it's pointless anyway. Might as well just scribble on a paper and no one's ever going to see it. What are you doing to fight the enemy? That's the point of the image of putting on the whole armor of God. What are you doing that helps you to fight back against his voice, fight back against how he wants to crush you and destroy you, how he wants to take you out of the fight. Are you in the Word often? I'd love, to, I'd love to see all of us reading the Bible daily, spending some time in devotion, but I also know that sometimes when you hear that, if you haven't cracked your Bible in a couple of weeks, you're like, oh, I can't, that's, that seems overwhelming. You just got to start somewhere. It's just like every January 1st when people make their New Year's resolutions, they want to go back to the gym. And they walk in like, oh, I don't know what to do. And then a month later, they're gone. you got to just start somewhere. Do something. Going for a 15-minute walk when you don't get blown away by the wind is a start. What are you going to start doing? You might not be ready to have a journal open and a Bible open and a 20-minute, have an hourglass of sand to drop a 30-minute time to watch as you pray. Might not be ready for that, but you got to start somewhere. What are you doing to be in the Word, and what are you doing to pray? How are you engaging with the God of the universe who made you, loves you, saves you, and wants to be with you? If you aren't pursuing Him in those ways, the enemy can take you out. And if Jesus needed the Word of God to say it is written, and if Jesus spent time in prayer with the Father, we should follow his example. We should follow his example. So this week, just do it. Oh, you probably did it while we were sitting here. I mentioned these things like, well, darn, I won't say another word. I don't, I'm not doing this or this or this. You've got to figure out your path with the Lord. It's your personal walk with him. How do you approach him? How do you connect with him? Do that. And then keep adding more time, more effort, more... You're going to have to put in some work. But it's going to pay off when the enemy comes and times are really tough because you've had the foundation laid in your relationship with him. And that will sustain you through the darkest of times. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have together in your word. And I pray, Lord, as we leave this place and we begin to think about um, our walk with you, 
how we spend time with you, how we're engaging with you in your word and in prayer. I pray that we would see some areas we can improve, we can get better, we can dig in a little more, not just to check it off a list, but because out of joy that we have in that time with you, help us to fall in love with time with you and help us to see that that's the foundational growth that we need so that when the enemy attacks, we can boldly say it is written. Help us to follow your example, Lord. We love you. Amen.